Welcome to On Scene First. I'm your host, Tracy Eldridge. With over 25 years in public safety, I am wicked excited and honored to bring you entertaining, educational, and empowering conversations with public safety difference makers who are harnessing the power of out-of-the-box thinking with the latest and greatest must-have technology tools and mental health resources to save lives on both sides of the call. Before we get started, a special thank you to our premier sponsor, Rapid SOS. As a trusted public safety data partner and the creators of the world's first emergency response data platform, RapidSOS is sharing critical data with first responders like myself to get us the information we need to save lives and property. To learn how you can become RapidSOS ready and better protect the ones you love, visit RapidSOS.com and tell them Tracy sent you. Now, on with the show. Hey friends. I am wicked excited for my guest today. Tyrell Morris is the director of the Orleans Parish Communication Center in New Orleans. From working at Disney World to running for president and everything in between, join us as we talk about leadership, embracing new technology, and the importance of staying connected to the mission. Welcome, Tyrell. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me this morning, Tracy. It's always good to see you. Oh, and we actually get to see each other because we're recording. We can see each other. Yeah. But we can't in person, and and we know that is so extremely challenging. But we're making use of technology, right? Like lots of Zoom calls, lots of virtual conferences. So um, just want to get started in finding out who is Tyrell Moore. So as I'm sitting here going, all right, I'm, I'm interviewing Tyrell for my podcast. I need to ask him some things that nobody else has because that's what makes it different, right? Yeah. So before we get into how you got to New Orleans, I want to ask you a very specific question. Who was Ty- Tyrell Morris as a kid? <laughs> Who were you as a kid? Because I look, I, look <laughs> I, I caught you off guard, right? You're like, yeah. what? I've never been asked this. I asked this because I love to look back in the past and see who leaders were right? Because yeah. we want to build new leaders. And, and if we can get those kids like at a young age, so who are you as a kid? Think back to who you were as a kid and tell me about t- that Tyrell. Yeah. So I am a, originally from the inner city of Philadelphia. Okay. Um, and I was a kid that I was definitely an explorer <laughs> um, where if there was a dark path or a, a area of the, of the street, or around the corner that I had never been before. I always wondered what was around that corner. Yeah, that's um, polar was, opposite to me. <laughs> I was the kid who always asked questions. Yeah. I was always, I was the why kid. I always <laughs> need to understand the why. Um, I was, so there's about a 16, there is a 16 year gap between me and my older sister. Okay. Um, and then my, my older brother and her are a year apart. So I really became the, I was the baby of the household. Everyone thought I was my sister's kid at first. Um, but I don't know. I, I was, a I, I always had this jovial, my mom said I, laugh, I was a laughing kid. I laughed at random things that no one else thought was funny, but they like made me laugh so hard. I had to catch my breath. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, so we, I grew up in Philly and then we moved to the DC Metro area early in my uh, like fourth grade, I believe. Um, and then I moved back to Philly for a little bit and then back to the DC area. Um, but I was a single mom. Okay. 
Um, you know, my mom definitely showed me what it was like to, to grind um, and, you know, go, 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 and, and to produce and provide for the family. Um, so that, that was me as a kid. I um, was definitely a, a, a kid that liked the arts. Um, I called myself a singer. I actually went to performing arts high school. You called um, yourself a singer? Do, do, are, you, are you good at it or like do you just oh, think you are? <laughs> funny thing about it is I actually graduated from the Duke Ellington School of the Arts wow. um, in Washington, D.C. with a, a degree in voice. Okay. Um, great. And then I decided I didn't want to sing professionally. I wanted to do something else. So I went to Ithaca College and got a degree in arts management, which landed me at Walt Disney World um for a while and then i said no nah, okay i like that i like performing um but i also like government and my whole life my um my my aunt she was the executive director of a homeless shelter okay um so she lived in philly so what every when i would go spend the summers with her i went to work with her every day and so i was like the homeless center homeless shelters kid where oh, that's awesome. i do body, i walk around I love going in the kitchen and make these big giant meals um so that was me as, as a child always um you know, I, I was a wanderer. I was a a kid that liked to, I didn't mind being by myself. I wasn't one that was like, oh, I gotta have all these friends. I just, that just wasn't me. I had, of course I had a couple of close friends, but I wasn't like, I wasn't one for the crowd. And, um, I, and I find that interesting because you have such a larger than life personality when it's needed. But then I can also see this like reserved type person. So you and I are very similar in, in that aspect where, where, when, when we need, I don't want to say perform, but that's kind of a way to put it. When you have to be on, you can be yeah. on, but you also enjoy that quiet reserve time. And I think that's really important because we're going to talk about some leadership stuff a little bit later. So yeah. So, so keep going. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I still am that way. Like I have a very small group of close friends. Most of them are from college. Um, and, you know, people say, oh, New Orleans is the party city of the world. It is, but you won't find me out there. <laughs> you're, not, um, you're, not, you're not on Bourbon Street every, not, every weekend? I'm not, <laughs> not. I mean, definitely when we first got here, we went to explore the city and find out what it was about. And so I enjoyed those moments, but once you did it once, okay. Um, so, but New Orleans has so much more to offer as far as culture and history and and just things to do and food, of course. Um, so that's where I really find my time as an adult. Um, but you know, that I, that that was me as a kid. That's awesome. And I and I just I love knowing. You know, sometimes I ask folks that question because I see who they are as a leader, and I'm all about good leadership. And you have clearly created an environment of good leadership. So. I hope you're very proud of that. Um, and we're, we are going to talk about that a, a little bit, but to know who somebody is as a kid. So when I was a kid, you said that you were the why kid. You would ask a lot of questions. I would do the same thing, ask all the questions and, you know, want, wanted to kind of be involved in everything, not necessarily to be involved just because I had to be involved. It was, I was very curious and, and I wanted to know a lot about a lot. So um, going back to Disney World, you worked at Disney World? I did. You need to tell me a little bit about that. I know I heard pieces of that before, but for those that are listening, like what was Tyrell Morris doing at Disney World and what was that life like? Yeah, so it's, oh man. So I, 
um, well, my first theme park experience started at Six Flags America okay. um, and, and right outside of Baltimore, in between Baltimore and DC. And I was a lifeguard ever since I was age 15 years old. And so I worked in pools for summer jobs, whatever. And then an opportunity came up at Six Flags to be a water park uh, supervisor. Okay. Um, and so I'd worked at Six Flags for a bit. I loved the theme park life. I was like, oh, I just, that was a place I was like, oh, I decided to go to work every day. Um, well, because people are happy. People are genu genuinely happy when they're yeah. at these places. Yeah, yeah, most most times. Most times. Um, and, you know, it, it was the best of both worlds. I had the water park, which I loved. I had my lifeguard staff, which I loved. And I had these people. And I had I, something about big, big operation is what really attracted me. Um, so I, start, I got my first bite of the theme park life there. And then I went to Ithaca College and an, uh, it requires an internship before you graduate. So I had the choice. I either can go to Disney World and do the internship or go to our London campus. Most of my other theater friends went to London and I was like, I don't wanna go there. I'm going to Disney World. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there awesome. I went. Right, so I um, worked at Walt Disney World from August to January for a complete um, fall semester. And I worked in the show development and production team. So pretty much we created the new experiences in our theme parks and cruise lines, um, getting them ready and then and de deploying them for on the, on the parks. And then we hand them over the, to the operations team and we were on to the next project. I did a lot of special events, um, you know, not so scary Halloween, uh, Mickey's not so scary Halloween party, um, the Ep Epcot Candlelight Processional Festival. I opened Finding Nemo the Musical. I was on the <gasps> opening theme for that show. That's cool. Um, at, at Disney's Animal Kingdom. So that experience really taught me what excellence looked like in a corporate setting. Love that. Um, Disney is, I think everyone knows, second to none when it comes to just operational efficiencies. Um, so I left Disney. I stayed on for a bit as a contractor doing some casting for them. Um, and then I went, went back to Virginia. I worked in the water park space for a bit. Um, and then I actually got recruited to go to New Jersey, um, where there was a, a water park there, um, looking for a leader. And I also became the general manager of that park. So I was there for two full seasons, I believe. Um, and then the, the park uh, was sold and changed ownership. So then I came back, um, to the DC area. So again, I really, in all my career, I think every place I've been to, I've been designed, they call me the Olivia Pope of, of government, where I go to a place <laughs> that's like broken and, and really try to become, make it a well-oiled machine. Um, yep. And so, you know, after that, I, that's when I entered my 911 career, when I left the water park and I enrolled in graduate school and I wanted a job that was kind of like chill. Man, I was wrong. I was gonna say what? Like, did you know what nine one one did at that time? No, no. Now, mind you, I I was a, a volunteer fire in the volunteer fire department for nine years, so I had an experience with the communication, okay. but not on the other end as far as actually being uh, in the industry. So when I got to um, DPSC, Fairfax County Department of Public Safety Communications, with the infamous Steve Souter. Love um, Steve. I quickly fell in love. I was like, oh man, this is exciting. Yeah. Um, then I became a police dispatcher for bits, I was there for almost two years. And then I graduated grad school and I got my first like big, big time job in DC. Um, I became the director of aquatics for the entire district of Columbia. Um, so, you, so, so you went from 911, oh, you went from the water industry to 911, back to the water industry, just for those that are trying to keep up, all right? right. So we're right. at the aquatic doing big things there. Yes, um, so in DC, I had 50 facilities that I was responsible for with a lifeguard force of 400. Um, wow. citywide. Um, and one of my goals was to make competitive swimming available in every public school in the city. Um, 
no matter, you know, we wanted to provide a gateway to, to any youth that had the ability to swim, you wanted to be a swimmer, provide a gateway, we said gateway to the Olympics. So no matter where you came from, you had an opportunity. Uh, so I that was realistic, um, that this, the school system was providing um, competitive swimming in, in all of the high schools. Um, and then I, uh, I was, right before I got married, about a month before I got married, I knew that I did not want to enter um, my marriage with a, such a high profile job. I wanted to take the opportunity to really give it its focused and really lay this strong foundation. And so um, Shannar Haynes, who was the, the director of operations here at OPCD, invited me to come to New Orleans to be her deputy. And I was loving the opportunity to be in the background and really be a gladiator for the, for the calls and not necessarily be seen. I think that yep. did allow me to establish a pretty strong foundation um, with uh, my own house. And I, I think it's pretty secure and stable. Very, <laughs> it very definitely secure. is. Um, but uh, we had a uh, mayoral election and we had a transfer of power um, where Mayor Latoya Cantrell um, called me one evening or soon after she had taken office and said that she really wanted me to lead OPCD um, in a new role, um, kind of reorganizing the organization and really changing the structure. Um, and, you know, she wants me to, let's, let's go, let's, let's start this journey. And so I accepted that opportunity on August 9th, uh, the board of commissioners came and, and unanimously voted um, to appoint me as the executive director. And it has been a journey, fun one since. Well, I will tell you, you make it look fun and you, I, I know you're under copious amounts of stress. I mean, I ran a 911 center that was probably the equivalent to the size of a corner of your, like, like one seat. Like, like I had the smallest of the small, I had a one person dispatch center, you know, but we did the same job. You, you have to do the same job. It's just very different leadership styles. And I've always envied the folks, little jealous of the folks that are able to walk into these really, really big agencies without fear, without intimidation and do the best they possibly can. And you from, from a public perspective have been a champion for that. You, you have a huge presence on social media, which it, which is awesome. Can you just talk to a little bit about the importance of that large presence of positivity? Because I'm going to come back and loop back to something about that positive imaging that I see. But what do you think about the importance of if somebody's out there does not have any social media in their center, what information could you give to them to encourage them to think differently? You know, no one's going to tell your story better than you. Love that. And for some reason, I think as an industry, we've, we, we have kind of sheltered ourselves because we've traditionally been subordinate to another public safety agency. And we've relied on them to tell our story. And I'm not saying that, you know, those organizations that are not independent, you know, that, 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 that's like a bad thing. But, you know, we, have, we, we talk about we want recognition, right, as first response agencies. We have to begin to act like it. And you know the first thing, look at our, our, our partners, our police agencies, fire EMS, that for the most part, they have very strong presence on social media. We have to match that energy. Right. If we want to be treated and respected with the same level of, of, of honor and, and appreciation and, and, and benefits per se, we have to also administratively move the same way. And, and you know, the public sometimes, the public is in, in a great place of darkness when it, how 911 works. 
they, they see Hollywood and when they don't get that experience, they kind of get disappointed. And so to me, information is what changes that paradigm. When we inform the public on what our processes are, the why behind what we do, things like we always told, you ask me damn questions. Let yeah. me tell you why I'm asking the questions are the questions do not slow down the dispatch. What it does is actually ensures that the response you are getting is the most appropriate. Right. Um, and so when you explain it that way, you kind of highlight, you know, it really showed the public that this is the why they, they really understand. Um, I also think it's a morale uh, booster for the staff. You know, my staff always talk about how they love um, when their families come to them and say, hey, I saw on social media, you all did this new thing. You know, yeah. it kind of changes the game a bit where not only can they tell the story, but other people are seeing their greatness. Um, and, you know, by all means, you know, it, it makes them feel and they can have a sense of pride in where they work. I think about Kelsey, uh, who was in our, the emergency call show on ABC we, we shot. And, you know, she, she recently has uh, left the organization, but to pursue some phenomenal opportunities. And I am not in the business of holding people hostage. I am in the business of growing leaders. Oh, you just, you just gave me goosebumps, my friend, because <laughs> Jeremy Jamar and I were talking about that on, on the last episode is that you should like, and I, there's a saying out there and you probably know it better than I do, but is you need to build your folks so they can go off and do whatever it is their heart desires, but you have to treat them in a way that they don't want to leave. Right. Like encourage that, encourage leaders. I love that. Keep going yeah. with that. Cause that's you know, important. And look, if they leave, I mean, I think you saw on social media, our director of HR um, left us on Friday Yeah, and everyone was like, Oh my God, one will be okay. And two, yes, we're going to miss him. But I, I, we all have a such, a moment of pride yeah. because, you know, I think the agency provided uh, him an opportunity to learn about himself and really realize his entire, his dreams. At the end of the day, we feel incredibly lucky to have had those almost three years with him. So yep. I, we have got to our CAD manager, you know, we hired a CAD manager, we brought him in, he was good for a year, but he, he became so good that he got scooped up by another agency. Yep. Okay, great. To me, that tells me we're doing something right. When people are coming to scouting you for me, <laughs> Hey, that means that we're doing something right. And I, I, no one has ever held me back. Yep. I'm not going to do that to anybody else. Yeah. And, and, you know, I just recently did the same thing. I, I left my center, never imagining in a million years that I would leave the actual comm center, got an amazing opportunity at rapid SOS, loved my four years there. But when I left, there was this like shock factor that, that went out and, and it was like, you left, like were they not good to work for? And it's like, no, they gave me so many opportunities to build who I was and allowed me that skill set to do my own thing. And they have been super supportive. And when you are super supportive of your people being their best selves, that just shows you that that that's what you did the whole time they were there, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So cool. I love that. And I love the positivity around that. You know, I think, I think there is, there are times that I'll see leaders and, and I, I'm going to say that I was guilty of it too. And, and I wish I knew then what I know now is I felt that because we didn't have a huge budget, I'm going to send myself to these trainings and then I'm going to bring it back to the telecommunicators. And I thought I was doing a good thing. But what I realized is I was limiting 
them and their growth experience. And if I could go back, there are times that I would have stepped back and said, hey, so towards the end of my tenure there, I was stepping back. I was covering the desk so they could actually all go to trainings. And, and that's a huge lesson to learn, don't you think? Absolutely. And look, I'm, I'm last year, I mean, I really enjoyed this 2020 conference break. Yeah. Because 20, 2019 wore me out. I'm sure. You were everywhere. <laughs> well, I was too. Like, well, put it this way. If, if I was seeing you everywhere, therefore I too was everywhere. It's like, hey, Jarrell, hey, Jarrell. I, I referred to us as like the traveling carny show. <laughs> like yeah. we just moved from state to state to state to state. And I miss it terribly. I, yeah. I, I do miss it. I can't, I can't wait till we're, we're back out there. Um, another thing that I think folks see, so, so we see you on social media. We see you very positively up there. We see you standing next to the mayor. We see you, you know, with the police chief, with the fire chief. And, and I think that garners a ton of respect. So kudos on that. The other thing we see is you are rolling out new technologies that are, you know, super helpful to the telecommunicator and, I, I can't help but talk about, I'm going to talk about rapid SOS first is you were one of the thought leaders right from the get go. When we, when I was at rapid SOS started rolling out more accurate location technology and you just gobbled it up. Like, like you were like, tell me about it. And then you were quick to roll it out. There are folks out there that are so afraid of new technology. They, they listen to their folks frustrated they can't find people, frustrated that the CAD's not working this way, frustrated that the CAD went down. They're frustrated with things that are happening, but yet they're not progressively moving forward and accepting change. What, what do you think about that? And what could you say to a leader who is afraid of change? So it's funny because this came up and I, so every year I usually do a communication executive academy where people come and spend a week with me and we just go through things like this. I have two points on this. One, I would tell them the risk of not doing it is greater than doing it. Fact. One. Two, if you are not embracing ways to actively, if you are not hunting, not embracing, if you're not hunting for opportunities to improve your processes for your staff or your citizens, you may not be the leader for the role. Yep. And there are times that jobs outgrow people. People also outgrow jobs yeah. um, where the job, the, the pace of the job or the skills required or the knowledge has, has increased, but the individual in the role has not tried to, to maintain their skills that go ready at all times, be well-versed on the industry and, and movement of it. And it's part of our show-up culture. You must be well-informed and willing. So if you're an emergency communications professional, I expect you to be able to tell me what NG911 is, no matter what yep. level of the organization you're in at this point. Yep. Um, and if you're unwilling or unable to do so, then you may need to hold the mirror up and ask yourself, am I the issue? Um, and that's a very difficult conversation for a lot of people to have with themselves. And I find that the conversation doesn't happen. And when it does happen, it's they're, they're being let go. Um, because the citizens already have an expectation of what we're doing. We are still playing catch up. And so to me, as a director, I see it as my responsibility to always be hunting for these ideas or ways to improve our business. Or if I hear a call ticker or uh, one of my team members have a pain point or a frustrating point, 
that that cannot fall on deaf ears because those pain points ultimately will lead to catastrophic failures yes. in our business those failures mean people die straight yeah. up and so to me when i hear it i try to understand the issue up front and find ways to think about a solution um and one rapid sos was an easy solution to a known problem it didn't cost me anything yeah it did require us to be a be to understand that this is new and then make further develop we yep. may have to train people three or four times but i will tell you now that we've done that we cannot experience we cannot we cannot even imagine doing the work we do today without it right and it has gone in many levels and i and i appreciate you saying that because i think what one of the things that I saw as being, you know, kind of the 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 advocate in the rah rah sis boom ba um, of the Rapid SOS product, it was we knew that we had the ability to provide a better location from the handset from the device. We wanted so much for folks to reach out to their vendors because the first way this started was reach out to your vendors, get them to integrate. Yes, we want it in your existing system. We don't want you to have an over-the-top solution. We know the challenges of that. But it didn't move quick enough. It, the, the, the integration partners, while they were amazing, they, it, they just don't have the capability and the flexibility to move as quickly as an over-the-top solution did. And then, sure. so they come out with the solution where you have to type in the phone number. And then now, now here's, I'm going to have you shift hats, not talking to the leaders. Now I want you to talk to the telecommunicators because number one, there's still folks that have not taken advantage of the jurisdiction view, which is automatically getting the info pushed, which blows my mind because we've learned so much from that. But there are folks that are still on the, the part of the service where you have to query the phone number. And in their mind, I, I have heard this. It's an extra step. If you are rolling out a new technology that, yes, is a very minimal extra step, and you receive that kind of resistance from your folks, how do you, how do you help them understand the importance of it? When I ask them, are you still connected to the mission? Ooh. Like straight like up. That. Yeah. I ask them straight up. Are you still connected? You know, do we need to reconnect you? Do we need to have a about the why? Why why are we doing this? Yeah. And you know, I think any call taker can imagine can can think of experiences where they wish they had better location. Mm -hmm. Or they thought they had the location and they sent the unit to the wrong place because they, they relied on the most unreliable source of information in a 911 call, that being the caller. I don't know why we ever thought that we should really put all the emphasis by a policy on the person who's having a crisis. Right, right. Um, why did we ever think that was a great thing? You know, I talk about this all the time where, where they'll say, make sure the caller verifies the address on the phone. <laughs> right. They said it they're, wrong once, they're gonna say it wrong again. Um, and so, and then what it, well, if you go to the wrong place and the caller is responsible, okay, I'm really going to hold the old lady whose house burned down responsible because she gave me the wrong address. No, I have the tools to make sure I get the right people to the right place at the right time. Yeah. Better than anyone else in the world. So if I already have phase two and you give me an address and your phase two is not nowhere near the address and me as a professional, I should know this probably isn't right. Yeah. But no, <laughs> not until we, we, we've written in policy, go where the caller says go. And to me, we, we've kind of painted ourselves in a corner. And so we have to break that mold that out of all the hierarchy of information, the caller is the most unreliable um, it, in, in that sequence. And for us, you know, when we brought Rapid SOS, 
I, I must say our staff immediately loved it. They love being able to take the street view and see. <laughs> Looking um, around. Right, right. They, said, they love being nosy. And I'm like, great, it's your job to be nosy. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for us, it, it really did mean, because our topography in New Orleans, we sit below sea level. So sometimes we don't get really good phase two coordinates at all. And we know that about the city. And so we tried, we tried our very best. Even when Karen came to visit me during Mardi Gras, we tried to find ways, areas that we can like, break down the reputation that it was so accurate. We're like, no, we're gonna find something. And we didn't find a single instance yep. where the Rapid SOS location was wrong. So there was no, no one could could come back and say, this ain't working, this ain't right. right. Um, so the, the technology was proven enough. And I think we did a good job understanding the why um, that our staff didn't buck back. But to the, but the people who do buck back, I, I, I would ask them one, if you are not willing to take a two extra seconds or use it, use it when you clearly have a location issue. Right. You know, maybe you slow roll. Hey, you, if you, if you have a location issue, do, did you use rapid SOS to kind of get a better location? Our policy today says, here are the tools that are available to get accurate location. We have many of them. We yeah. have wave. We've got rapid SOS portal. We've got carbine. We've got phase two. We've got the caller using all of those together. We call our, we said in the, the academy to the car call takers, you're like a plumber. And we're putting all these tools in your tool belt. Yeah. Your job is to pick the right tool to fix whatever problem presents itself. So our policy is supporting that saying, in 2021, there is no reason why we should get an inaccurate location. There's not a single reason. Yep. Other, other than the call being third party. You know, that's right. the only time where it could be wrong. But any of the time, if the address is wrong, it is on the it is on the call taker. And so far, now we've applied that pressure. I can't tell you the last time I got a complaint about we sent units to the wrong address. But before that was happening once a day. Wow. And then if you think about it, you know, giving an understanding to the responders too. I think that's I think that's a place, and I will assume that your responders you work very closely with your responders, but that doesn't happen everywhere. Yeah. And, and I know that, you know, our police officers, they would come in and, and if they were upset about a location issue, you know, we could literally point to the screen and say, yeah, but look, you know, this is what, this is the location that we got. And, and we didn't have all of these cool tools. So you mentioned uh, carbine. So you guys are getting uh, or have the opportunity to get pictures and videos into your center how are they receiving that? Are they understanding of it? Is it because it is in their control, right? It's not like they're just getting things sent. How how are your folks feeling about that? So far, so good. I know we've had one instance already where um, the caller was driving through the city um, and she was reporting a domestic kidnapping. And although we had our location, we really needed to get some more information about the type of vehicle she was in, how many people are in the vehicle, maybe look outside at landmarks to see what's in the community. And so what she did was she was able to turn on her camera um, and we were able to see out the window and put together like what's around and really get a really accurate location like where on the street uh, she was. Wow. Um, that was an already a win for us there. Now I will tell you this though, we are, we are in the process of designing a brand new position in the PSAP. Okay. Um, we're calling this person a data analyst. Love where, that. Um, it's a separate position. The individual will have some specialized training and will go through a very different psychological evaluation because we've made the decision. We don't want our call takers to see pictures or video. Okay. Um, just yet until we really understand what the public will be sending us. 
That makes um, sense. So this specialized position is kind of going to be all things data. So they will review the pictures and the video. They will also be the ones doing the in-depth review of the NCIC returns, okay. um, checking records management. So they won't be talking to units or callers. They'll just be looking through CAD and looking through various systems to unearth any kind of intelligence um, that may that may be useful to those responding units, um, but also someone that we know can handle the what they may see. Right um, now, I think a lot of this is unpredictable, um, where we don't really know what we're going to see, how we're going to see it, how often we're going to see it. Um, all we know, or or really the characteristics of a person that should be sitting on the other end of that. All we know is you know let the doctors tell us what's what, if a person can handle it, and if it, as the, as this evolves and develop, begin to apply some very different standards um, to make sure that we aren't further damaging our people. Yeah. And I, and I think that's a really smart way to go about it. And not everybody, not every agency can do that. And we, we know that, but it might take you just putting that into somebody's thought process to go, oh, hey, wait a minute. We may be able to implement something like this, a position like this, because it really is important, especially with the call volume that, that you guys have. Um, one of the things that I try to explain to folks too, is I don't, I don't confidently think it's almost like text to 911. When text to 911 first became available, there are people, they're like, oh no, they're going to be texting all the time. And I want to talk to the caller. I feel better talking to the caller when in fact, the number of times people actually text 911 is minimal. And, yeah. and it, it's not always that crisis call, right? Yeah. So I think this is going to be that same way. I, I don't think we're going to deal with somebody who's cut their leg off with a chainsaw and be like, Hey, let me send you a picture of it. Right. Right. Like this is gnarly dude. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, where, where I think we're going to see some immediate um, um, use of the technology when it is rolled out is one. I think people who snap pictures before they make the call, We'll be able to transmit them really for evidentiary value. So like hit and run where they snap the picture of the plate before the person left. Yep. Or they happen to get a picture of the suspect and you want to get a picture. I don't think anyone is going to be going to want to send pictures of someone mangled. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't right. provide us any additional intelligence about sending the appropriate response or of, of much evidentiary value because the officers are going to get there themselves and take their own pictures. Right. Uh, the other piece, I think... Um, you know, we, it's like everybody has a home security camera now. Oh, yes. That used to be a luxury. Now, it's like if you don't have one, you kind of look crazy. So we need to find, I think this is going to be an avenue where that multimedia can quickly be sent to, to, to public safety agencies through the 911 center. So if we happen to catch a crime on your front camera or a, a carjacking or a burglary or whatever, now there's a very easy way to send the, the footage um, to those who need it um, sooner rather than later. So it um, also eliminates hopefully an officer coming to knock on your door um, and right. speak the, the process. Um, so again, that's where I see the immediate use of it. But hey, every time, you know, every week we get a new <laughs> use case. You know, it's like, oh, hey, I didn't even think that I could use it on that. Exactly. Um, and and you, you talk about that incident happening. I, I've referred to this before. Uh, I'm an EMT and we got dispatched to a 10 year old that got hit by a car and the dispatch said, you know, no injuries reported. When I got there, I spoke to the driver and I asked how fast he was going. And he said, Oh, I was going about 10 miles an hour. And then I spoke to the kid's older brother and he said, well, he didn't really, you know, he didn't get hit by the car. He kind of bounced off the side of the car. Well, I find out like five years later that somebody's 
outside camera caught it. And when I ever watched that camera, that video five years later, I, if I had that video responding, it was very different than what was given to me. That vehicle was going much faster than 10 miles an hour. And that child was hit at the center of the front of the vehicle. And I would have been calling for med flight. It would have changed the response of that call. So I, I definitely agree. I think I think that's a that's a great way to to look at it. Um, as far as the mental health aspect of it, you said you have your folks. You know, you, you're going to come up with this new position to help with that, but it doesn't take away from you know the folks what they're hearing now. I'm going to assume your quality assurance program is is a decent one. I mean, it has to be. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your quality assurance program? Because then I want to kind of loop back to the mental health and the importance of having a good quality assurance program. Yep. So, um, one of the things, the first action I took as executive director, I created the division of training and compliance. Love that. And it's a unit of seven full-time people. Wow. So we have four squads. So every squad has a training compliance specialist assigned to it. And there's two supervisors and a manager of the unit. So those individuals, one after every, so every morning we publish the major offense log. Um, all of those calls on that major offense report are, are, are reviewed and, and, and scored. Um, also, we randomly pull 1% of all of our calls and we score them during a normal um, process. And we provide the feedback immediately to the call taker. Um, and they, they get it in a written form. Um, and if, if the the result is anything like a non-compliance. Um, there's a corrective action uh, documentation required from the supervisor of that individual. The other unique part about this is the training compliance division is a direct report to me. Okay. So they are outside of the supervisory chain of command. And that's on purpose because I felt that all the supervisors, when they were conducting investigations, they were always the bad guy. They were, gotcha. so if you knew the supervisor was coming, they knew it was always something bad. And so it made the moments of celebrating kind of diluted because yeah. most of the interactions were negative. It also, you know, some people would give the statement of, well, my supervisor doesn't like me. That's why she did this. No. So the training compliance team, the reviewers are peers um, yeah. and, and they're not on your particular squad. So if you're on eight nights, your, your calls are queued by the person on the other squad. So they don't really see you every day. And all they do, do they provide a transparent fact-finding report yep. to you and your supervisor. And then the supervisor is the one that then takes the action. But the, the, the questioning, the investigative part is done by a peer, not your supervisor. Um, so that kind of removes that bias or, or claim of bias out of the process. But also it gives them the direct access to me in case I need to know about something happening. I, I don't, I don't, it doesn't get diluted through the many levels of, of, of leadership. Yeah. And I, and I think that's important too, because one of the things that I saw, um, and again, I can only go back to my experience, right? I I was a small agency. I was the director. We didn't have supervisory levels and I was behind on QA all the time. It it would take backseat. And again, through learning and education, like if I could go back, I would have changed that to make that a super priority for those two reasons, right? Like you, you just made a really, really valid point is that the times of celebration get lost or diluted as, as you called it. We know that QA always comes with this negative, like I'm going to get busted for something. So it sounds like you really are trying to celebrate the wins too, right? What, what would you yeah. say to that? 
Yeah. So the motto of the training compliance team is catch them, do it, catch, catching them, do it good. Catch, catch them doing it good. Love that. And um, that's super important. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, th that, that's the way they approach it. Um, and I will say when, if we have a 50, 50, you know, we tell the staff all the time, if you can justify the decision that you made and it makes sense and it's supported by policy, then you're good. It may not have been the most, it might not have been the best outcome. And so we, we separate how we um, manage misfires per se in two different buckets. Was this a performance issue where you just need some additional skills or training, whatever in, in your mind, we can see how the methodology made sense, but we're gonna just coach you to, to make a different choice next time. Or is this conduct? You knew better, you made a choice not to do it the right way. So okay. we make a, a very strong definitive um, assessment on which track we're going to follow this through. And let me tell you, you can have phenomenal conduct um, performance, but if your conduct is poor, you're out. Yeah. Um, so if someone has great performance and they have good conduct, we will work with them all day long to improve their performance. But the moment your conduct uh, puts us in a position to potentially bring liability or embarrass the agency, I don't give a damn how great you are, you won't work there. Right. And and that's important, right? We always talk about these folks. They don't have a choice when when they have an emergency. They're calling nine one one, and you are it. And one of the things that I say all the time is, "Do you want you answering your nine one one call?" Right. Like your tone of voice, just the way you're speaking to the caller, the inflection, the frustration. Um, I just recently wrote a, a swatting article. Um, I write training articles for the public safety group, and one of them was on swatting, and I talked about active listening. And one of the things that I noticed quite a few times in quality assurance when you listen is that folks are not always actively listening. And, and I know that because the caller will say something to them and they respond with, okay, but then an inappropriate response after that. And that's a fine line too, I, th I think, because it's like, do you do you nitpick that particular one person on that? Or do you come back and do a whole training for the entire staff because multiple people are doing it? Do you ever find yourself going, this is something that we see repeating itself. So we're going to kind of do a review with the whole staff. Is that, is that something you guys do? Oh, yes. So every Monday morning, I had it this morning, I have a, a command staff meeting and um, this is where the team will bring issues. And, and there are many times where, in that meeting, the issues come up again. <laughs> like, we talked about this last week. This is still okay. What are we going to do about this? Um, and they know that they're going to if they're going to brief me on the same issue twice, the next thing better be this is what I, my recommendation is to to address it. Um, you know, I firmly believe in holding our leaders accountable um, for the productivity or production of the teams under their command. Just like if someone botches a 911 call, I'm going to have to answer to that. Yep. Um, and, you know, it makes it easier to do that when everyone adopts that same methodology. Um, so the ops managers on every squad, they, they, they know that they have to set goals. They have to really work to have a bird's eye view, a good pulse on what's happening. Um, and if, it, if, if an issue ever bubbles up and I ask them, okay, what did we do? This was a known issue. What did we do to address it? And the answer is nothing that's going to be met with some, you know, evaluation about was this the right move or should we have? Um, and so I think the leadership team really welcomes that opportunity to, to gladiate for their own staff, but they do it with a sense of personal responsibility. 
And that, and that's good too, because what I will tell you, so even just hearing how you're running your leadership team, there's, there's something that I very specifically picked up on, which is super important is you have set a level of expectations that they have to meet and you've given them the tools and the expectations that you have coming back from them. And, and I think that's really important. Uh, I, I, I've been in situations where my leadership, which was government leadership. Right. So my boss, I was, I was a department head. I answered to a town administrator who answered to the board of selectmen who didn't have one iota of a clue of what I did in my, in my responsibilities. All of a sudden, when he decided that he wanted to turn against and not be so positive about me and my employment there, he was kind of coming after every little thing that I was doing and then kind of making me feel bad for not knowing that that was what was expected of me. And that, that was difficult. That that's a huge problem for me is if you expect me to do this, if you expect me to do something in a certain way or to a certain level, doesn't it make sense to make sure that your folks understand what that is? Yes. Yes. That's, that's key. That's, that's key to leadership. Right. And, and there are times where in command staff, I also share the leadership when I'm under pressure. Um, where, you know, if we, like this morning we have our, t- we had a 10 o'clock marriage briefing. We talked about the objectives and goals for the week around vaccination. And so then I then translate that to my team about what, what are the expectations on me? And then transversely, how, what are my now expectations on you all to produce, to help us meet this other um, expectation? We do not deliver sloppy work. And the team will tell you, I will say <laughs> that's, that's sloppy. Um, or if something happens or a response is not executed um, or, or things don't seem together, then they, that, that is a term we will use. We don't do sloppy work around here. And so now when the agency is called upon by our public safety partners, they know that when, when OPCD does execute and deliver, it's going to be with incredible accuracy and precision. And that is pretty awesome. I have to, I have to say, and, you know, I know there's so many people out there that are picking your brain and, and getting, you know, your thought and take on things. And these are all really important topics that I think sometimes leaders think that they have to take all of this stuff on themselves. And the next kind of piece of that topic, what are your thoughts on delegation? Because it's, I, I clearly get that you have no problem releasing some of the reins and the control, but I know that there's some folks out there that just cannot do it. What, what advice would you give to folks that are like, nope, I have to do it. The responsibility is on me. And if I want it done right, I'm going to do it myself. One, I am at a place where I'm not interested in, in bringing on stress that isn't there. But my role really is to be a coach. I, I, although I carry the, the, the title executive director, I do establish a path forward for the agency, but the tactics and strategies that we travel down that path, I really leave that up to the leaders um, to, to establish that. Because if I, give them, if I give them marching orders for every step they take, they'll never learn. And when I leave, the place will fall apart. Yeah. And then there goes the legacy that I have built 
for the organization. So I am really focused on right now building a, an organization that this level of productivity is sustainable. Um, and, but that means me letting some people bump their head. Yep. You know, not letting them die, but letting them bump their head and feel, okay, I bet you won't make that mistake next time. So when you're presented with the same situation, you're going to remember this pain you had and go <laughs> down that road. Yep, but if yep. I guard you from the pain, then you'll do the same mistake again. Um, so really my goal, and I tell my team all the time, come to me to seek guidance. Don't come to me to, for a solution. That's awesome. You all are the solution makers. My job is to guide you in that process. That's it. Now, ultimately, there's some things that require my signature thing come to me. But as far as executing the daily mission of the organization, y'all know what we do here. Go do it. And I think you, you said another valid point there is if you were to leave, it, how, how would it run if you were leave? So that is huge on succession planning, right? Yeah. Is to make sure you, you want it. So God forbid you even, even you had to be out for a little while, right? Is that you could disconnect stress-free and know that your team is going to carry your very important mission forward. So I love this conversation, Tyrell. I could talk to you all day long, all day yes. long and pick your brain. Um, but I know your time is super valuable. I know folks are going to be really excited to hear um, about this. Two things I want to point out. Number one, you just recently did something outside of dispatch. You got your real estate license. Yes. Well, how does that happen? First of all, how many hours are in your day? And how important is it for folks to step outside of the profession and do other things that are not consuming of public safety all day, every day? Yeah, I reached a place where I had to find another place of happy. Okay. And, you know, I work hard, but... There are very few times that I'm at the office past five o'clock. Okay. Unless I have to like go see the night shift or I want to see a roll call or spend some time with them, then I'll, re I'll change my day a bit. Now, there are moments like this week is Mardi Gras. So this week is going to be hell. But and I guess some of it may have been COVID kind of give a, get a little bit of relief. But it is very rare now that the team has to call me for what do I do? That's a good leader. Now, when I first took this job, they, and my husband will tell you, that phone rang every night, all night. When, you can, when, when you can minimize the number of calls you're receiving after hours, you yeah. know you're a good leader. <laughs> yeah. they, they, the only time they will call me now is that if we have something that may become newsworthy or may be elevated to the level of the mayor um, or something that may escalate outside of the norm like give an example we had a four alarm apartment fire two weeks ago with 120 units were like threatened by the fire that was significant where yeah. many agencies would have to come together and and service our people and so that required a phone call you know yeah. um but the standard run-of-the-mill stuff no the team you know our system texts me all night long so if, if i want the information it's there but they're not going to disturb me so now if the phone rings, it is definitely, excuse me, I got to take this call. Yep. Um, and that's where the place that I've been working to get us to for a long time and we're there. So now on the weekend, they, I mean, I they, they didn't call me at all this past weekend. Wow. Um, so I was able to go and show homes and sit <laughs> with my husband and, you know, so 
real estate is something I've always had an interest in because I just love, you know, helping communities thrive, taking, and I, I'm specializing right now on first-time home buyers, but also blighted property. Property has been abandoned, flipping it, getting it back into commerce. That helps everybody. To me, the yeah. challenge is so rewarding. Um, but no, it does, I, I'm able to, to, to do that and still have a good balance. Um, but that's, that's because the people at work don't require my undivided attention anymore. I, th I think that's great. And that's a huge lesson, the importance of that balance. I know many people that are directors, they're, they're doing their thing 24 seven and, and, you know, to hear that there is hope <laughs> for them to, to disconnect from work and, and actually take on kind of another career. I, th I think that's, that's really awesome. And then I'm going to ask you this last question and I promise I'm going to wrap up. Are you going to be president someday? Because I feel like when I read your post, you're like, yep, I'm going to be taking that oath and I am going to be president because I would so vote for you. I'm just saying. So, you know, my mom, ever since I was like three, she always called me Mr. President. Um, some, so, someone said I was the president of the sandbox um, when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> and when I when I was in CP, I, was, I took the APCO CPE course. Yep. And that was a very not challenging, but it was a, it was a course that really forced you to grow. Yes. And that was the first time I ever verbalized out loud that I did have the desire to be president one day. <laughs> um, and to get everyone's reaction to where it wasn't like, are you kidding me? To get the reaction of, I can see it. I can totally kind of, see it. You know, it, they made me believe in myself. Yeah. Um, Cause at first it was like a joke when everyone was saying, it, I was like, well, maybe I, I like this idea. Um, but especially um, as the, the, the past couple of years, I have really begun to think like, what would I do in that role? What, what would my next move be? How would I would have answered it? Watching the debates, I always sat here and asked, how would I answer this question? Um, so I find myself in that. Now, of course, there are probably some other moves before moving to Pennsylvania Avenue um, a long ways away, but um, that is definitely something that I can say is, wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me if it happened. It, it would not surprise me either. And I had to bring it up because I, I just, I listened to your leadership skills and that is, to me, that is everything you encompass right now is, is what we need, right? So if that's where you're going, I, the 9-1 industry would be sad, very sad to see you go, but I know that there are thousands of people out there that would be supporting you in that endeavor. Look, look, recognize, I'll tell you that much, as first responders, I'll tell you that much. Oh yeah, you would, you would. <laughs> Tyrell, thank you so much for your time. I, I know it's super valuable and I, and I really appreciate you being here. And I appreciate what you're doing for this profession. You've been here for a short time and you know, compared to, to many other folks, but, but you're making a big difference. So mm -hmm. I appreciate you. Thank you for the time today. I appreciate it. It's great seeing you always. I'll talk to you later, my friend. All right. Thank you for listening. Make sure you join us next time for another episode of entertaining, educational, and empowering interviews with public safety difference makers. Please like and follow me on social media at On Scene First with Tracy Eldridge so you too can keep up with my shenanigans. Thank you, heroes, from the bottom of my blessed heart. Stay safe, stay strong, and stay here. We need you. 
For more information on RapidSOS, our premier sponsor, and how you can get connected to the world's first emergency response data platform and better prepare and protect your family and community, visit RapidSOS.com today.